Oh, hey, I'm glad you're here. This is a special episode, and I know I say that a lot, but have you ever asked yourself, what would I want to release if I had a label, be it for music or movies? What would you curate? What flavor or genre would you want to focus on? And imagine looking back after a decade of releases and seeing what you've accomplished. Now, these episodes are a celebration of a movie, and the guest, we use the film as a template for the interview, which is why I don't usually use a documentary, because that really should be a celebration of those lives. I can't do both in 60 minutes. And since Julia Nash did such an amazing job, uh, I think these voices say it better than I ever could. So now, a quick listen to the trailer for the film we're discussing. My very special thanks to Jim and Dan of Wax Tracks Records. Why would anybody want to move to Chicago? I've been to Chicago. There's nothing going on there. Wax Tracks Records label. You may leave as long a message as you like at the beach. Thank you. Oh, you know, there's these guys that are going to move here and open up a record store. Bootleg Bowie. Wow. Walking into somewhere like that, it was just like, you know, it's a kid in the candy store. Cool social shit was going on. Not just music, it's a scene. It's a social scene, it's a fashion scene. It was really weird to see a place that was literally built for people like me, and it was magical. It was a John Waters film come alive. There you have it. Watch this documentary, even if you don't know the genre. I think it's fascinating, really well done. I also want to encourage you to check out any of the bands we discuss. Some are no longer releasing music, but others like Thrill Kill Cult, still touring. Others like Collide, just released a new single, Unholy. We mentioned Collide later on, but talk about a band with top-notch electronic production and like dark ethereal vibes consistently since 94 is the Crimson Trial. So while we're talking about one decade, there were bands before and after. So it's my hope that we make them all proud with this little conversation about a man and a label that means a lot to me. Also in this episode, we talk about a song I sent to him. This is a song I recorded for a compilation when I was 17, and if you want to know what it sounds like, I hit it at the end of our episode on Hideaway, the Dean Koontz movie with Jeff Goldblum and Godflesh. Yeah, it's the episode right before this one, and if you want more other than the Chris Connolly episode on Suck, check out Gypsy83, our Crow episode, and Brain Scan. All these episodes have industrial goth talk in them and should fit that need. Now let's get right into it. The film is Industrial Accident. Our guest is a Revit Head music label owner, and this is VHS. Welcome to VHS, the podcast where each episode is about a film and the guest has the profession or experience portrayed in the film. I'm your host, Dirk Marshall. In this episode, I break both of my rules. Number one, never cover a documentary. And number two, the guest must currently have the profession being discussed. Because I wanted to speak with this guest for quite some time, and the idea of this episode was too good to pass up. My guest is Chase. Welcome. Hello. Hey, now. I've never known your last name. You've always just been Chase. I don't know if you want to ruin that illusion or just remain as Chase. At the end of this interview, I'm going to make the big reveal. Yes. Okay, perfectly. And you currently work in PR, is that correct? Correct. Is there anything you wanted to tell us about that? Yeah. So, I mean, when Reconstruction, my label, it folded in 1999. 
And at the time, the music industry was going downhill because of Napster and a lot of people, independent labels, it was harder because people were stealing your music. And so it looked like that industry was going to be imploding. And so I saw gaming was going uphill, was growing because when I was running the label, I was also a freelance game reviewer. I actually went in-house to launch the Sega Dreamcast with a PR agency, and I did video game PR for 13 years at an agency. I launched everything from the Dreamcast to Bioshock to Bayonetta. In fact, the last projects I was working on was The Last of Us, and I launched Twitch. And so then I went in-house at Twitch, and I did their PR from when it launched in 2011 to 2019. And now I work at another company called Stream Elements doing their PR, which creates engagement monetization broadcast tools for live streamers on platforms like Twitch and YouTube. So I've gone from music to gaming to live streaming. So that's been sort of my arc. But I have found ways to sort of incorporate all of my learnings on my career journey. I mean, there's even, I'll tell you a story later on about how I tapped a bunch of art, industrial goth artists during my PR days in gaming. Awesome. And the reason that you're here today is because from 1992 to 1999, you were the owner and operator of Reconstriction Records. Is that right? I ran the label from 1991 to 1999. Okay. And the the parent company I worked for was Cargo Music, but I did all the signings of all the artists on the labels. I chose all the artists. I did all of the PR and I did all of the advertising. I did everything for the label. And I can later on provide some more backstory of how that came to be. Perfect. The film that brings us together is Industrial Accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records from 2018. At the time of this recording, the Blu-ray is out of print, but it's streaming on Amazon and YouTube. The synopsis is two men accidentally change music by taking a tribe of outsiders on a trip through underground music in the 80s. I guess that's the synopsis. The documentary features Trent Reznor, KMFDM, Thrill Kill Cult, Ministry, Chris Connolly, Front 242, and more. And if you enjoy this episode, please check out our Suck episode with Chris Connolly. Also, listen to his book, Concrete, Bulletproof, Invisible, and Fried, My Life as a Revolting Cock. It's a great book, but when it's read by him, it's especially wonderful. The film is directed by Julia Nash, who's Jim Nash's daughter. And let's press play on Industrial Accident. The film starts with Julia Nash and Mark going into a shed where all the bare-bones remains of wax tracks are hazardly strewn. Where does Reconstriction's bones lay? In boxes in my garage. Okay. I mean, when I left, I saved like 10 copies of every album, but I put out, I guess, over the course of my career, there are about 40 or 50 different releases. So those add up. So, yeah. But what I've done over the years, I did like when I was trying to clean house, um, there was like a local industrial club where I said, hey, if you want some free recon swag to do a recon night at your venue, let me know. And they did. So I gave them a whole bunch of boxes, posters and stuff to give out and hopefully inspire the new era of, of rivet heads to discover these artists and, and go, wow. But it's interesting that I'm tied in with Wax Tracks documentary because my origin story is very, and the label's origin story is very Wax Tracks centric. Oh, really? That's yes. really interesting. I knew that you had reconstruction stuff. And so when the movie opens with them like combing through these boxes, I was like, well, of course. I mean, if you have a label for over a decade, yeah. There's stuff that's going to be somewhere. There's things that are going to matter to you and things that you were a part of creating that they'd have to be stored somewhere. I mean, for me, I stare at the CDs and things every day. In fact, I have something else right here. Yes. 
It's my reconstruction yep. shirt. It's the classic one. Boy meets girl, boy ditches girl, girl buys Glock and ventilates his spleen. Same old story, but with better music. <laughs> Gosh. Yeah, I was going over looking at some of the ad copy and taglines I used to write for the label because I pulled out my box before the show to sort of awesome. refresh my own memory. And I don't know what I was thinking. Some of the stuff I wrote, I could not read on this show yes. because I said, that's so offensive. I mean, I don't think I ever did anything that was like racist or homophobic, but definitely push the envelope when it came to violence. I think yeah. that was like, I always, I always like to try to get a reaction. You know, it was, uh, I mean, I'm not Gigi Allen level of, <laughs> of reactionist, but, uh, but, you know, I always try to think of creative ways. You know, I mean, I had a whole theme that was very anti-rave culture. So I've mm -hmm. sent out promotional crowbars with a tagline, you know, ever crowbar a raver. I mean, you can't really <laughs> right. do stuff like that nowadays. And I probably should have done it back in those days either. But you asked where my stuff is. I have it in my garage, but I also have a storage unit where I have tons of crates of stuff. But that covers not just my recon years, but all of my different gaming years. And because mm -hmm. uh, I come from a collector's family, and so I've I've always known in advance to always save everything because you never know when something might be valuable, which is a a burden and uh, actually it's just a burden. Yeah. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> There's no. no upside because it's tough to find an audience for a lot of the stuff I've archived. Yeah. Oh, same. Except for you. Tell me I'm about it. Getting it all. Yes. <laughs> oh, great. You're, you're in my will. It's all going to you. <laughs> Perfect. Smash cut into stainless steel providers. First talking head of the movie is Jelly Biafra of the Dead Kennedys. He's reminiscing about his first time at the store, Wax Tracks. The film has Jim and Danny's origin story, their meeting, they're starting a new store called Wax Tracks Records, and being into underground music like rockabilly, psych rock, glam. The Ramones come to town, they love the store, blow everyone away. This wasn't Jello Biafra's first show, but it was the first time the Ramones played in that town. So I was curious to ask you, what was your first live show you went to? It doesn't have to be in the genre. Well, the first concert I ever went to was 1985 Iron Maiden's Power Slave Tour. Oh, which And, and uh, Wasp, F Like the Beast Tour. It was basically World Domination, something like that, tour. But it was, it was for their Power Slave album, Iron Maiden. I even wrote a review for the school paper, If You Want Power, You Want Power Slave. <laughs> So uh, that was the first concert I saw. I grew up in Tucson, um, where you had two choices of music, metal or heavy metal, <laughs> on the radio. We had one weird girl at school who listened to like Depeche Mode, and, yeah. and I go, oh, this is cool. And then when I moved to California, well, I don't know if you want me to bridge into my origin story with getting to yet about how I got into the industrial scene. Put a button in that for one yeah. sentence, and then we'll be right there. Because sure. my first live show was seeing Ethel Meatplow open for Knights of Reb, which was oh, that's uh, amazing. It was really shocking. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I saw Ethel Meatplow before at some small venues. But first time I saw Knights of Reb was when they opened for on their Depeche Mode tour, which right. was great. It was funny because I was dancing while they were playing and nobody else was. And then when Depeche Mode came on, I sat down and everybody else stood up. <laughs> That's where my head was at at that era. Yeah, I get it. So the store in the movie is the beginning, the epicenter of their path in industrial music. But what is your origin? So let's start where you were talking just a moment ago. Okay, so in high school, my junior, senior year, I got into punk. And then I got into goth music. And this guy, Tom Hayden, gave me a cassette of his brother's industrial radio show. On wow. that cassette was Front 242, 
scraping fetus off the wheel and revolting cocks. So it, it totally opened my mind. Like I love this music. So I went to the local store record store, the indie record store. And I remember because the guy had a little bit of an accent on the tape, I go to the record store owner. I go, yeah, do you have the new foot two footy two? Nice. <laughs> and, and so he goes, yeah, it's over on the wall. So I'm there staring around and I, there's a big two, four, two, but I'm looking for something that has F O O T. Like I'm right. like, he goes right there. I go, yeah, I see it. And so I bought the fetus album and I bought front 242 and I bought Revco. You often forget. And what happened and which probably happened with what a lot of people were wax tracks fans of the day is I got home, played it, obsessed over it. And I found that sleeve that had all the other releases. Yeah. And so I went out, I got Finney tribe, I got minimal compact and I just bought everything. I mean, they introduced me to the pixies. <laughs> and so a lot of this is a lot of the blueprint for what I tried to achieve with my label. Interesting. And we can work up to that or I sure. can, <laughs> I'll, I'll be saying that a lot. Should we do it now or do it later? <laughs> Wax Tracks was a big inspiration for what I want my label to be. I wanted people to buy my CDs, see other groups. Yes. My groups didn't all have to have the same sound. I wanted them to trust my taste that, hey, I like these groups, but here's this one that sounds nothing like the rest. But if this label is recommending it, maybe I should give it a look too. Mm -hmm. So Wax Tracks was a huge influence on me. Oh. I love that. My brother's five and a half years older, so he and a friend and I were at the beach, and his friend was listening to a Walkman, and I said, what are you listening to? And he put the headphones on me, and it was Nights Are Ebb, and I was like, what is this? Because I had just heard of college radio at the time, but not really listened to much of it, and so he told me, and I was like, well, I got to get this, and at the same time, we had a video show late night called Panic. It was a local cable access show. And it had the down in it video before Pretty Hate Machine came out. And I was like, well, what is this? And so then I went to the record store and got that single. And then the album came out. And then that was my gateway to Wax Tracks. And just like you said, I had to have all of it. Like anything, <laughs> I was buying the Coil Love Secret Domain album. I was like, you know, anything in there. I was getting Excessive Force, the KMFDM side project. Like... I couldn't get enough of everything. And it seemed like it was like the same five or six people, but like I was just like, I need it all. <laughs> it was crazy. And there's an importance to labels like yours, Reconstriction, and Wax Tracks is like you said, there's like a safety in knowing like I trust this label, so I'm going to spend the money because it's not like you could just listen to it in the store a lot of times. You're just blind right. buying. Um, and you couldn't do that with like Ministry because they were on Sire and so was Cindy Lauper and Falco. And like, don't get me wrong, I love Falco, but... You know, it's different than ministry. Another thing I would do is I would go to Industrial Nation, flip to the back, and get demos and stuff from bands. I would, like, write them and be like, hey. And so, like, Kevorkian Death Cycle, I had their first, like, tape. I remember calling labels. In fact, for all of our listeners, I actually spoke to you probably 30 years ago. I remember Kim at, at Cop International. Dawn, was it Dawn at 21st Circuitry? Yep. Okay. Jared at Fifth Column, Martin at Invisible. Brian at Cleopatra, maybe? Yep. Yep. And Tom at Decibel. And then Metropolis was later. But, like, seeing all these different labels again, I was like, oh, my gosh. Like, this was... I mean, you were all people that I talked about to my friends who had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> so Chase was one of those names. And Recon, to be honest, was my favorite label. And for a lot of different reasons. One, 16 Volt Skin is my favorite album of, like, all time. I absolutely love that album, Start to Finish. And the compilations and things that you put out on a sister label, is that correct? So I started, If It Moves was actually started before Recon, and it was my own. Unlike 
Reconstriction, which was owned by Cargo Music, If It Moves is something I created myself and fully okay. owned. But it was also done in limited quantities. Like I would only print like a thousand of each release. I did it because they weren't designed to be money makers. They were designed that I wanted to put this out there in the world. Mm -hmm. I couldn't afford to pay artists to be on it. So I said, hey, I'm only going to print a limited amount. And so that way they knew I wasn't like making a profit off their art at the time. I heard this cassette, fell in love with industrial, fell in love with wax tracks, went off to college, started doing a industrial radio show at KCR at San Diego State. It was called Fantasia Aftermath. I always started off with like the theme from Bald Mountain from Fantasia. And then I would (laughs) always segue into like Pig. Oh, nice. Pig had this one song that starts off very orchestral or Throne of Agony by Scraping Fetus. I always like to go into something very orchestral and on the industrial side, but I always set the tone that way. And so I was doing this radio show, but at the same time, I started a fanzine called If It Moves, and I wanted to review industrial bands for my fanzine. So because I was working at the radio station, I would contact other radio stations and say, hey, are there any good local industrial bands in your city? And so then I would get leads on it that way because there was no internet, really. I think internet was just coming to use. I mean, there was like some message boards, but I felt like I did a lot of phone calls and you know, yeah. and so I started compiling cassettes for this publication. And then um, I said, oh, I've got all this good music. Instead of focusing on the magazine, I decided to do a compilation album. And that's sort of like the, the Torture Tech Overdrive came from. Fight! 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 And part of my mindset with these compilations is that I always wanted to this is something that has never left me is I, I've always loved words and I always wanted to create new new jargon. You know, mm-hmm. I was always fascinated. I didn't want to use words and phrases people have done. So I that's why I came up with like 18 different ways to describe industrial dance. <laughs> yeah. And so that was sort of like a thing. What new terms can I come up with? Were you responsible for Rivethead or was that a thing before? Okay, so Rivethead, it's funny because I saw it's in Urban Dictionary. It says, Chase coined the phrase Rivethead. I actually, perfect. <laughs> and uh, the thing about Rivethead is I did not coin that term. There was a woman whose name was Luz, like L-U-Z, I think. Mm-hmm. And she was up in Berkeley and I met her and she was talking about, she mentioned, oh, all the Rivetheads. I go, that's a great word. And then I didn't think anything of it. I don't know if it was widespread. I don't know if she came up with it. But, you know, somehow I was credited with it. I'm never one to take credit from where credit is due. And sure. so, but no, so I did not coin Rivethead, but I did use it for that name of that album. Then I started seeing other people using it. So I was happy to see that that go the way it did. So I started doing my compilation, but so I was at this radio station. Yeah. And then um, I, I became the music director. And when you're the music director, everybody sends you music to review, to add it to the library. And I started getting KK records. Thank you. 
Dutch dog and a lot of their Belgium imports. I start going, oh, this is cool. And I go, wait, these are coming from San Diego, which is where I was. I go, they're being shipped to us locally. Like, who the heck has is putting out KK down, right down the street? So I called up the label. and I'm like, hey, that's really cool. You're putting out this music domestically. And they said, yeah, well, nobody here really understands the music, which was basic code like nobody here likes it. So then they said, but we're looking for somebody to help promote it to clubs. So I went to Cargo and I started doing the club PR for KK. I didn't really know clubs, but they had like a pre-existing list and I started working off what they had. So I had like a place to start with and I'm very resourceful of expanding, you know, tracking down goth and industrial clubs. I then took over the radio promotion for the label and then doing PR for it. And we're getting closer to where reconstruction comes. So during this time, I'm, I'm running my label, if it moves, putting yeah. out some releases. I think I put out two. I put Torture Tech, then Cyberflesh Conspiracy. Both those came out before. Here's Cyberflesh. Yep with a beautiful detest elephant. And there's probably words probably hidden somewhere on the cover, like girls' names or things like that. I always wanted to have secret things for whatever reason, you know, yeah. or I mean, and just even the stuff I wrote in the liner notes, it's kind of scary now that I have <laughs> things out there that I can't take back or rephrase or re-edit. It's um, the early 90s. I mean, yes, come on. Exactly. So I then said to our management uh, at Cargo, I said, you know, I realized that KK stuff it was it was a lot cooler when it was harder to get. But I realized, you know, I, I I thought this stuff was okay, but I said, but there's so many good US groups that do not have labels. And mm -hmm. I said, why don't we just start our own division? And I already had a whole bunch of groups because I've been doing my comps. I knew groups that would be great for this. And they said, okay, you have one, you know, you could sign a group and if they do well, you can keep signing. If not, you had your chance. And that was the start of reconstruction. Perfect, because next in the film, Wax Tracks releases Ministry's Cold Life 12-inch, and that is when it started to take off for them. So your first release was Diatribe's Nothing EP, is that correct? Correct. And, and then was uh, that your, was it initially successful? Yeah, I mean, it's not like it sold like hotcakes, but it did well enough that it wasn't a flop, mm -hmm. um, that they said, okay, you can sign another group. And so my second group was actually going to be Stabbing Westward. Because I had released one of their songs, Violent Mood Swing. Yes. And I'm, I'm the only, so they, it's the only song they'd ever released on a comp outside of their cassette. It's very different. song i love the the samples and it's mm -hmm. like still the only the song i really love it there so i said so i started talking to them but to be honest the label i worked for wasn't giving a lot of money to, to groups especially on my label and so i would it's like we did make an offer at the time and then 
my friend who worked at, I think it was Roadrunner, said, swept in and said, oh, sorry, but we're going we're to be signing them. And I'm like, ah. And then some major label above them swiped them from yeah. them. Then I call my friend. I'm like, sorry, you didn't get them. So yeah. anyways, <laughs> but then when I heard the release, it was good for the kind of music it was, but it wasn't the kind of music that I liked, which was they got rid of like all the samples and electronics and basically yeah. took what they created that was probably the reason why I would imagine is one because that's when samples had to be cleared and you know there's expensive to put out albums with a lot of material that wasn't original so I assume that was part of the driving force and maybe they just wanted to be an actual band more than just a you know a bunch of electronics so I didn't have any regrets with the product they put out because then I said oh well this wouldn't have really fit with what I wanted to do right and that's when 16 volt came onto my radar on my radar but i actually the earlier stuff before my release it was a little derivative of, of ministry mm-hmm. in the way that i liked it i said people would like this but it wasn't original enough to me but then with skin yes they started finding more of their own voice and more of their own sound and i said okay this was good not that their other stuff wasn't but this was more in my vein and I also had a vision. My label is going to be all guitar-driven electronic music. Mm-hmm. But the difference between what I was hearing coming out of Europe or even with industrial labels was I wanted the vocals had to be distinct. You had to be able to take a vocalist from one group, put them on somebody else's CD, and have you go, oh, that's so-and-so from that group. Yeah, That was sort of my litmus test. I didn't want somebody who was overly processed for your car here, really, where they could be anybody. And so... I just really want to have a distinct sound and distinct vocalist. So that was very key to what I was looking for. And then I felt once I built a, a sound, then I could expand to some of the other things that I'll go into. Yeah. So then after 16 Volt, we got the opportunity to put out Leather Strip. And I had already been a huge leather strip fan, uh, even though, but that's an example, like that was just a license deal, but it was like a sort of, a, I think it was the best of at the time. Like, I think it was from a couple releases or. You know, you I can't find much them. on that release and I don't have that one, but I love Klaus. He's fantastic. Well, well I probably have an extra copy. Maybe oh, I'll go into storage and send you one after the show. Thanks. Yeah. So part of the deal was though, if I put out that, I had to put out the technotic effect. Okay. I don't have that either. It was a package deal, and that was like, we were working with like Zothamog. Yeah, it has and, a, an X marks the Pedwalk track on there that I was like, I got to track that down, but it's nowhere. And so the thing about it was I did not want to put that CD out. Like I said, this is nothing like my label. Right. But I really wanted Leatherstrip because I knew that would put me over with a lot of fans because Leatherstrip did have a following. I mm-hmm. said, this will help introduce people to my label. And like I said, I liked Leatherstrip. Even though they were a little to the side of my sound, I thought, they would be a good fit for it. And then, but the thing about the funny thing is the technotic effect actually is one of the top sellers. Like, I guess it just had, like, I guess some of those, like, Chala XTLC or whatever his name is. Chala X- oh, yeah, Chala like, XEX. It, it, it obviously had some techno hits that people were really 
big on because for some reason that CD kept selling. So that that, that it ended up being a good signing, yeah. but I I never li- really listened to it, and uh, I think I might have named it though. Yeah, so I tried to uh, not think about that too much. And then I think after 16 Volt, I think it was Play People. Like Play People, before I signed them, they actually put out an album that was almost like gothic music. Like, But it was a really poppy song. And I really liked it, but just wasn't the style of my label. And then they came back and there's some of those early tape, the stuff they put out, like, I, I go, oh, this is really because we're like gothic industrial. And mm-hmm. I really liked metal. And I thought they had a really unique sound. And Dan Neat had such a specific voice. Like, yeah. I like, I love his voice. And so that sort of fit in with what I was doing. And this is sort of leads up to Shut Up Kitty. Okay, perfect. Let's stop there then. Because I wanted to ask, so in the film, the Wax Track store becomes like a social place, an epicenter for outcasts and weirdos and people that like industrial music or bizarre stuff. A bunch of people that were on tour with Ministry were actually working in the record store. I came back from London in 83. I, I moved straight into the back bedroom at Danny and Jim's. They were living in apartment down the street because they had turned the upstairs of the store into a boutique. The band still hadn't taken off, so I was sort of like, I'd work at the front counter, then I'd work in the boutique, I'd help with the windows sometimes, you know, with uh, uh, any uh, construction work or anything that Danny needed. I was sort of like the gopher boy, you know. When I first moved to America, I started working at the store pretty much immediately because I needed some kind of income. And I worked with Frank at the store. Did that exist for you in San Diego or? Yeah, so when I was DJing, um, in addition to DJing at the college radio station, I also also was doing club DJing. Got it. So there was, uh, but there was like a lot of random clubs like that would come and go. um, Can you drop some names? Oh, like, well, I mean, one that didn't come, one that's been longstanding, there was a club called Soma which was downtown. They had an upstairs and a downstairs. So you might have some ska band upstairs. Then we'd be in the basement playing, you know, <laughs> yeah, doing dark stuff. But there was just, I don't remember a lot of the names. Like I said, some places weren't last longs, but we did have some local clubs in San Diego. I met through the label. I met DJs in San Francisco and LA. So while I was doing the label, <laughs> I was also doing keyboards for the band Pain Emission. Oh, cool. And so uh, when I say keyboards, I sh- let me rephrase that. I was doing samples. Okay. And I was doing samples with a keyboard where you can only really do two at a time. So it was like you would hit a couple samples, then I'd have <laughs> yes. to go and take the hard disk out. I, I had no musical talent whatsoever other than finding musical talent, but they were a local band because I started playing their band on my show. I put mm. them on my comps. Yep. And then so then I, I bought a sampler and I started playing with them for shows. So we'd also, I did some local shows with them. I mean, there was like some clubs, but nothing like I think like a record store like Wax Tracks would have been. Same, um, yeah. I did go to a lot of record stores on my own, but yeah. Yeah, we didn't either. But in Portland, where I live now, that's where there was a store called Ozone. And it was the, like this huge, expansive, dark store that you'd go, you know, in your youth and it smelled weird. And there was weird corners <laughs> where they sold like music concrete and stuff where you're like, so what's Salil Moon? Is that a label? What is this? You know, and... <laughs> And I would just buy all these weird imports of things, you know, it's like a cassette in a wooden box full of B-wings. And I'm like, perfect, I need that. And like, you know, just random 
weird noise things, but it was such a cool place to go to. Then it split up and now it's no more, but I really loved it a lot. <laughs> Next in the film, Wax Track seeks distribution for European music here in the States. That's kind of like what you're talking about with KK. Is that right? Yeah. KK was the Wax Tracks of Belgium and we were the distributor. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Car Cargo was both a label and a music distributor, by the way. So we also distribute a lot of music too. How does that work? Did you find stuff and say, we would like to release it here or? Yeah, like I said, I didn't license, like I think I only licensed like the leather strip. Um, okay. I think the num release was licensed too. I think okay. somebody else put that out and we licensed it. Yeah, so it's, it's similar to that. I licensed some stuff overseas. Like we had, I forgot the label. Like some labels put out, like I think some of our groups, I know we licensed Clay People to another label mm. overseas. I think we did a 16 volt release. Okay. Collide, maybe. Cool. But we did try to get other labels to help if they weren't distributing it to license their own uh, versions. Did people submit demos to you or? Oh, yeah. After a while. I mean, originally it was me searching stuff out. Yeah. But then at, at some point, you know, once my label started getting recognition, I started getting submissions. So like Stabbing Westward, you found, right? You came across yeah. that on your own. 16 volt, same thing. Yeah, correct. Apparatus? apparatus ah that one might have been sent to me but to be honest it's so long ago yeah. i don't remember which ones were sent to me and which ones i tracked down okay. at that point i just have um, one more sure and because he did the music that's part of our when we take a break and he wrote the initial original music for the podcast christ analog oh wait how did i discover christ analog that's another one he had actually put out a cd yeah. Before, and that CD, it was good too. Texture um, of Despise, right? Yeah, that sounds like it. <laughs> and then you put out the one that has Optima and Cold Magnetic yeah, Sun. Yeah, I really liked his voice. His production was so sweet. I really enjoyed it. And I really love his Natural Born Killers cover for yes. Operation Beatbox. Yeah. I wish I had better memory. Yep. And you can see me breaking on the inside somewhere. Oh, yeah. That's me break dancing. Is it you in, on the back in the recon shirt? Yep, that's me. Yeah. And I still have that boombox in our garage here. <laughs> that's awesome. My wife uses it for the cassette player to play cassettes from, because we still have them from our childhood. Me too. So. Yeah. Oh, I love it. Okay. So next, uh, Patrick from 242 talks about industrial music being linked to punk aesthetics. Nobody really in the label seemed more punk than Recon. There was something about your compilations, the collage work going on with some of the um, the booklets. It felt like zines, things I would see in <laughs> punk stores. And then, of course, like, you know, the like you said, the little hidden things around and stuff that you could find. Like, there was, there was like, a depth to the layers of the releases that I always really appreciated. Oh, I mean, so I can talk a little bit about my approach to the art that I had a yeah, hand please. in. Whether it was my own If It Moves releases or things like Shut Up Kitty or Songs from the Raceland or Nod's Tackle Box of Fun. Mm-hmm. First off, I always wanted to give my label its own voice, and by voice, I mean in terms of not just sound, but of, of aesthetic. And, you know, 4AD had its own look, Wax yes. Tracks had their own look, everybody had their own look, but the industrial goth scene itself, I always felt, took itself too seriously with too many tropes. So I wanted to bring sort of a levity and a street culture energy to the movement. It's kind of like how you could have a, a group like Babyland that evokes one thing when you see the name, yeah. but then when you hear the music, it totally recontextualizes it. Yeah. And I wanted to achieve that for my label. So I would go to the Comic-Con because uh, it was it was very small back in the day. But I used to go there in the early days in San Diego and I would find artists who did like manga or different things. And mm -hmm. that's who. So I would choose the stuff for my releases. Songs from the Wasteland is a good example. 
I took this guy, uh, this character named Nod, who's from this art book, mm. and I had the artist, though I put this character who's usually in the happy environments, but I had the had the art created that's really dark around him. Same thing with Songs from the Wasteland. You see this guy walking. Like, I looked for characters that were not necessarily dark characters, but I found aesthetics that would make them appear that way. And so I really wanted to have fun. I wanted to have, but I also wanted it to be cool. I wanted it to be aesthetic and I want it to define better to help shape the music. Like when I was doing the songs from the wasteland, which is something I licensed from somebody else who put together, they said, hey, we put together this mission comp. Do you want to release it? And the thing about it is the reason, I, not that I was in the business of putting out other people's comps, but I realized he didn't have my favorite songs covered. Yeah. And so I said, I'll do it, but I want to be able to add some songs, uh, which I think include like Christ Analog and a couple others, Society, mm-hmm. but I forget who I added to that or I have in front of me. But I also did the artwork. And I'm sure if I didn't do that artwork with my cartoon character on the cover, it would have been a graveyard with a cross or something like that. Yeah. Like, I was yeah. not going to bend the knee and put mission aesthetic art on my mission tribute album. And the only other time where I released somebody else's music was uh, TV Tear. Somebody came to me with yes. TV theme songs. Yeah. I said, this is a good idea, but I I didn't like a lot of the songs, but I had a lot of songs I wanted covered. So I said, I'll do it, but but I ended up at making a double CD, and most of the industrial stuff are things artists I picked. And unfortunately, they already had the title picked out. That was the one CD I didn't choose the name for. But the funny thing about that CD is the subtitle was Filching a Dead Horse, which is obviously a a very perverse sex act. And that got on MTV News. And I remember the two hosts were talking. And one the the woman goes like, I don't know what that means. And the guy next to him is like, all snark says, I bet you don't. I mean, she was serious. And then uh, I remember the other CD that got on MTV News was Operation Beatbox, which was great because they played Salt and Peppa's Push It, and then they played Numbs Push It. So those were some of my career highlights was getting two of my releases on MTV News back when MTV played music. Yes, that's awesome. Oh, in the songs from the wasteland, that's also my wife dressed up all gothy on the liner notes, but she's not a goth. Okay. So, and that was me in Operation Beatbox, dressed up like a b-boy, but I actually was a break dancer back in the eighties. Oh, perfect. Well, that makes sense. Then, <laughs> did you still have the moves? Yeah, I can still pop and lock. Actually, I have a video I'll, I can share with you. I I put one out. I made break dancing back in the eighties. Yes, please. You know, a lot of people might go from one music genre to another, but. I've always been the Borg where I assimilate everything and I continue to like it. Like I still love metal from the eighties, like yeah, the Iron sure. Maiden, but then I got into break dancing. So then I got into electric funk. So I still love that stuff. Then yeah. I got into to new wave, got into punk, got into four AD, got into goth, got Same. into industrial. Same. And every one of these genres, I continue to love what I listened to before. I like, I never said, okay, I'm not into that anymore. And then I became a music director where by default I was listening to all kinds of music. Yeah. Operation Beatbox, I had all my favorite rap songs. I couldn't tell people what songs to do, but I definitely would make suggestions like, hey, you should do this song. And and sometimes they'd say, okay, and they were on it. Sometimes they wouldn't. You know, I did use that to try and get a lot of my favorite songs covered. 
Yeah, well, Christ Analog's Natural Born Killers is amazing on there. The 16-volt ain't going out like that is great. But, I mean, I was going to save it for the end, but Num's cover of Push It is <laughs> so great. Like, beyond uh, just a cover or a parody, it's, like, really well-produced, and it just is so catchy. And I remember playing that and putting it on... Uh, mixtapes for people and they would be like what is this and i'm like yeah it's numb cover <laughs> it's people just go whoa this is otherworldly because um, i just liked introducing people to to new music you know i really like the christ analog song on that my favorite is the christ analog because i really like how he would cut the sound from speaker to speaker yep so the audio sensation was really cool with the, the production on that mm -hmm. i also when i first put it on i thought it was a little cheesy so i buried it near the end the Institute of Technology song. Oh yeah, but I love that song now. And now I, it, it actually became one of my favorites. I'm, I was friends. With, I'm friends with the guy who does it, um, and so from Institute. Uh, yeah, yeah. Josh, he was because he actually when I left to get into gaming, he actually worked at Harmonix where he did like rock band Beatle, and he was like the uh, there's a game called Thief where they he's actually the face. Oh wow. Hood. So yeah, so it, our careers both were parallel. We both moved from music to gaming. Yeah, that song, The Walking with the Cookies, you know, it had yeah. some great just uh, All You Mad Jaw Was in the house. It was just that, it was really silly. And at the time, I thought, oh, this is a little too silly. But then after listening, it grew on me. Now it's like one of the songs that when it comes on, I'm like, oh, this is fun. Their demo cassette is one of the ones I wrote and got from, I think it was from Industrial Nation. But I still have the cassette, like in the case, yeah. Institute Technology. And so when they popped up on that compilation, I was like, I've been following these dudes. Like I was, yeah. I was really excited about it. Oh, I didn't mention this, but one of the guys on my compilation, a group, there's a group I put onto my If It Moves called A Politique. Yeah. That group is the guy who does that music, his brother is the one who I got the cassette from. Oh, what? And I didn't, and it was, I wasn't introduced to him from his brother. I don't even know how I came across, like I discovered the group. And then it turns out the guy whose radio show got me into industrial, I ended up putting out his industrial music. That's so cool. So it went full circle with him. But what Apolitik did, which is really unique, and you don't hear this, um, not on all their songs, but they had a couple songs where they did this, is they had a verse where the same guy would do it, but he would sing a line, but then he would speak it underneath it, and then he would scream it on top. Oh, yeah. Like, it was a three-layered vocal track hitting all three styles, and I thought, somebody else should really do that. Like, it's a really underused, mm -hmm. cool thing to do. It's like, sing, scream, and talk the same lyrics. Right. Three layers. I love that. Next in the film, Jim and Danny love turning people onto new music, as we've been talking about. And I don't know if it was your aim, but you're why I know who Vampire Rodents is. I would have never come it across at all. That's a great segue. Vampire Rodents, they'd sent me their war music CD. And there was something about, like, I, there's a part of it that's probably really annoying, some of the vocals that Daniel does. Like, <laughs> it's very it's really grating, But there was something about the music that, like, I don't know why, but I, I really like the music. And, um... Just some of the songs hit some, it just, it was weird. It's like one of these things, it confused me. Like I didn't know what it was about it, but I liked it. I reached out to him and then he shared some music he was working on. I said, I like his music, 
sometimes he's actually some of his vocals are really cool some are kind of he, he switches his style a lot mm -hmm. like when he sings i actually kind of like but then when he does some of his screaming and for lullaby land i connected him with two vocalists dan from Babyland, and i forgot who sang on one of the other songs but i i had two guest vocals because here's the thing I wanted to work with Babyland Dan so much because I could never sign them. Yeah. Like they were already signed to Flipside Records, so they already had a label. Yeah. But during the course of my label years, they were my all-time favorite industrial group. I love them live. I love their music, oh, that early live, stuff. Yeah. So that's how I want I got him on a song that way. So then when it came to their second album that I put out with the mouse on the front, Clock Seed. So for that CD, I said because he, I really liked his music. I said, let me get the vocalist. You create the music. I'm the one who got all the different vocalists on every different track. I mean, like the 16-volt track Jared. is great. The SMP. Basically, SMP was, I couldn't get Babyland, and they had a very similar sound. So it's sort of like, if you're not going to let me sign you, I'm going to sign somebody who sounds <laughs> like, you know. Um, they, but they had their own vibe. Yeah, yeah. They were more, they were more rap-oriented, which also, I love the rap and industrials. Their track on that's really good. But yeah, so that was one of those examples of Wax tracks where I said, if they can introduce people to the Pixies, I can get people in the Vampire Rodents. But I knew that I did have to work with those other vocalists to help as a gateway mm -hmm. to get people into them. Because I knew without those vocalists, it might be too noisy, too disruptive. And Daniel's a genius, though, the way he creates music. It was all sample-based, but he would use hundreds of samples. And I also, I didn't mention this for Clock Seed, I also sent him a bunch of hip-hop beats from other rap groups. And I said, sample this loop, sample oh, cool. this. And to help get some songs, that's why if you listen to that, some of the songs are funkier than they yes. would have put out like on Lullaby Land. Yeah, it's yeah, a so that, that great album. Vampire Runners was that. And then the other pivot, slight pivot, is I wanted to start doing more with female vocalists. In fact... I found my old notes. I was going to put out after Shove Kitty, I was going to put out a release of all industrial groups with female vocalists. Because there wasn't a lot of groups at that time, I was going to get a bunch of groups I already worked with to, to get female vocalists for it. It was going to be called Her Recoiling Fist. Nice. And then I think around what happened was I think Cop International ended up putting out a female, a woman-based industrial comp. And that's sort of like, I didn't want to seem like I was following their idea. And I hadn't really started mine, so I... yeah. I killed it, but that was good. I was excited. That was something I was excited about, a passion project. Like, oh, I'm going to be the, the first to put out a really hard-hitting. That's what I liked about Collide. They had some songs that hit harder, but had the melodic vocals. I said, all the ethereal groups, like they had these vocals, but the music went with it. I said, I wanted to find more groups like Hexadine, things that were more abrasive music with nice vocals. Yeah. And so, A Waiting for God was a great one. <laughs> Yeah, so that was sort of like I started pivoting towards that. Like I said, I wanted I started signing more female groups, and that was sort of part of my direction. It was not my final pivot, which never happened, but we can work up to that. Okay, perfect. Next in the film, 242 is touring and opening for Ministry, which sounds like an amazing show. Did you organize tours for Recon? We didn't organize them, but we definitely helped support them. So like when our groups went on the road, we would send CDs or posters. We'd create posters for their tours. We'd create swag for them to give away or sell. So we didn't actually organize the tours. I did do like a CMJ showcase 
college music journal used to be big showcases throughout New York. And I did one, which was like, that was a great one. I remember it had like 16 volt and battery and the headliner was de Krups. Oh, wow. Oh, oh wait, actually I did organize one. That was a bunch of my groups that was 16 volt and gosh, now I've got to figure out who was else that was like on virus it. 23. Was that the one? I don't know, but I did basically I did a South by Southwest showcase. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're gonna have to do a part two of this podcast where I actually go and find all my footnotes to everything right. I can't remember. But yeah, they did their own tours. Got it. Hmm. But a lot of them actually didn't tour that much because I remember, I think it was Collide. They make more money not touring. Like they would actually lose money going on the road because they were producing other people's music. You know, they had a lot of, they had, they had day jobs, mm -hmm. you know, so it wasn't that lucrative to go on the road. And we really didn't have the budget to say, oh, if you got, you know, to really support something grander that would make them motivate them to do so. So that, I mean, that probably hurt the label in general, not Collide specifically, but a lot of the groups didn't tour that much. I think 16 Volt toured, Clay People toured, mm -hmm. but a lot of the others didn't really tour much. It was tough to get the word out, I think, in terms of, you know, that happens when people tour, so. Right. Yeah, because you never know, like, any opportunity could be, like, the band's big break or, you know, in right. the right place at the right time. And speaking of breaks, we'll be right back. Now, I have a question for you. What would Vice Squad be without Wings Hauser? Or House 3 without Brian James? Would you watch Panther Squad without Sybil Danning? No, it would be boring. That's how we feel about food and Marshall's Hot Sauce. Wake up your meals with these small batch sauces created and bottled by a chef. These aren't made in a co-packing plant. They're thoughtfully sourced balanced creations with a focus on quality and flavor. The red chili lime, sweet and a little spicy, like Gage in Pet Cemetery. Or habanero carrot curry, which is more spicy and ethereal, like erotic ghost story. Marshall's Hot Sauce has something for everyone, including the mildest, which is a smoked habanero barbecue. Kind of sweet, kind of smoky. It would be right at home on the range with Klaus Kinski in the Great Silence. You know what I'm saying. There's also a new line of seasonings with real ingredients dehydrated and combined into fantastic and easy ways to cook for yourself or your family. From the new herb pasta and marinara packets, right on down to the explosive volcano sparkle, which I'm sure Zed and Blue's Academy 3, you know the part where he hangs out in the tear gas training? What a cut up. I'm sure he'd, he'd want some sparkle. You'll find it all at marshallshotsauce.com. Enter VHUS podcast at checkout for 20% off. Plus, you might get a little something from me. So head on over, wake up your meals, not to mention Sarah's now teaching classes again so you can learn hot sauces, pickling, all kinds of stuff. I'm hosting hot sauce tastings where you can hang out for an hour and just eat spicy stuff. But you'll find it all there, marshallshotsauce.com. And now, back to the show. And we're back. And what happens next is a game changer as they are introduced in the film to the Fairlight, which can do sampling, but only eight bars. And so I love that in the movie they discuss, like, that's why Revco's music is so hypnotic and repetitious, because they could only sequence eight bars and they didn't know how to link it to the next eight bars. And, um, and that's what makes something like Big Sexy Land, which is the first full length by Wax Tracks. Now, online, they say your first full length is Leather Strip. But that wasn't the first full length that you put out. Um, no. Well, I put out Diatribe, which was short. Uh, 16 Volt would have been the first full length. Okay. Yeah, so it's just uh, good old Wikipedia is wrong. But let me, you know, who knows? Maybe they were both put out the same year and somebody got the chronology wrong. Or 
or unless I'm wrong, uh, it's been a long time. I, I mean, I was looking at some of my own notes, and I had wrote down that. Well, actually, unfortunately, I don't write the chronology in this this particular <laughs> note. It says Diatribe Six and Volt were signed while Leatherstrip was licensed to the label. But when you talk about not knowing how to do something, uh, how they had the keyboard that mm-hmm. they, I actually had similar thing with if it moves, which is that I did not know when you choose the color. Like I would look at the screen when I was doing my artwork for my If It Moves releases, I would look at the screen on my computer and go, oh, I like that green. And that's when I'd give it to our designer, I'd say, print it out with this color. I did not know about Pantone colors. Oh, right, Which is why when you look at the cover of Rivethead Culture, you see how dark it is? Mm -hmm. It was not supposed to be that dark, but the guy who was doing the art, he never gave me any advice. Like he should have told me, he never asked what are the Pantone colors. And so I'd get these back. He never even mentioned that, oh, well, that's because you didn't, and so I was stupid to just thinking, oh, I just going by what's on the screen. But and I mean, if you look at that cover, you know, it's a pretty great image of Santa getting <laughs> about getting mugged. Yeah. I had a couple other CDs that just did, the colors were not hitting the way I wanted them to. Yeah. So I that was something I had to learn. Yeah. Once it's printed, that's that's it. Yes. Yeah. Next, it's late 89 and KMFDM is opening for Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste Tour. Ministry and KMFDM Classics. I would have loved that. And maybe it's just my youth and looking back, but shows just seemed like they used to be very dangerous. I don't know. <laughs> now it just feels like maybe it's just because we're all older. But I just remember going to like KMFDM and ministry shows and things and being like, we all might die. This might this might be the end. I don't know. Yeah, I guess to me, it was before I got into industrial, I was into punk music. So yeah. I would go to like LA. I was going to a place called Fender's Ballroom in Long Beach where... The skinheads and the sueys, which were the fans of the suicidal tendencies, would all congregate there, and they were rivals, and people would get jumped. The bouncers would come there. They would take out the wounded, but not the people who did the fighting. <laughs> so it's sort of like, yeah. like, instead of saying, get this brood out of the club, they're like, okay, that guy was just beat up. Let's help him out. Yeah. You know. So that, to me, was scary. What was also scary was we had a local band in San Diego called Crash Worship. Yes. And they played here, too. It was crazy. I took my wife to one of their shows, and the, it was in a very small place that probably could hold less than 200 people. And they started doing a, a fight in the middle of the club with sticks on fire. Yes, fire. Always fire. And literally, yeah, fighting with fire in the middle of a club with probably no exits. I remember we were hiding under a table inside the club. Yeah. And to me, afterwards, I remember telling my wife, oh, that was the greatest thing ever. And she's like, to this date, she said, that's the worst. I think that was our first date, too. <laughs> You know, we've been married for over 25 years, and I've known her since 1987, so we got married in 97. That was dangerous. So going to industrial shows, you know, compared to punk, yeah, it was much more laid back. But speaking of KMFDM, I think the point where I thought I had made it in the industrial scene was there was a day where I was on the phone with Sasha from KMFDM. I yeah. said, I can't believe I'm talking to my idol, and I have to get off the phone with him because Ogre is calling me on the other line. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry, I got to go. Ogre's calling me. That was such a weird moment. I said, I can't believe it. I myself, I was in awe. And I can't tell that story to anybody other than you <laughs> because nobody in my life of the last 30 years has any idea who either of them are or who either of those groups are. Because yeah. once I left the industrial scene, I mean, I still in touch with some people and stuff, but just my friends and coworkers, it's not really an industry any of them follow. Sure, you know, cause yeah. industrial Because it never blew up. So, you know, it's like, so if I can't, I can't tell that story to anybody other than you and have have somebody go, oh, that's cool. Nobody else, they'd go, I don't know who they, they are. Why would... <laughs> They're like, so anyways, that was, my, that was the moment where I felt like, I can't believe it. I feel like I've made it. Of course, the reverse made it is that 
the people who used to box up my albums for a brief time when I used to have them shipped out were the guys from Blink-182. <laughs> so they were a local band in San Diego, and the boss who ran Cargo, his son said, hey, there's this group that's selling out like warehouse shows locally. They were a small punk group, high school type group. And for their summer, they would come in and they'd help ship stuff. So I That's remember so I, I had my albums that needed to go out and those guys would help ship it out. Really <laughs> nice guys and stuff. Yeah, but I guess they went a little further than I did. Yeah, just a little bit. Nice guys, though. They were really nice. I didn't know. This was before Travis Barker. They had a different drummer for the, yeah. for the first two albums. Yeah. But those albums we licensed to MCA, and that's what funded my label for the last two years. So oh. um, I have to thank Blink for uh, keeping Reconstruction alive. <laughs> that's so, so any crazy. Any fans, thank Blink-182. <laughs> that's so funny. They also discuss in the movie humor in industrial music, and that's something that I've always known. I mean, obviously from Revco and everything, that there's humor in Wax Tracks, but there's a lot of humor in the Reconstruction catalog. I love that. I love that like dark sense of humor. I love the way that you would have weird samples at the end of things <laughs> where you'd just be like, wait, what is this that's playing right now? Like, I just came across Got Moose. Yeah. Moose was the guy who used to do my radio PR for me. He's actually still one of my friends. But yeah, Moose is a person. So there was a track on there that I didn't have on anything else. But there was a untitled track separately, untitled track at the end of the 10-year anniversary CD that's like the weirdest samples and stuff. And I used to love it when I would find these gems that you would put out because I would put them on like mixtapes and things and like play them for my friends and stuff. So I just wanted to say how much I appreciated the humor that you interjected. Into is that stuff. the one where I put on the cover of Gin and Juice by yes. Sissy Barr? Yes, yeah. Yeah, I heard that and I go, I love this song. I got to find a place to release it. <laughs> it's really this. good. But the joke about the 10-year anniversary was the little asterisk on the cover. Yeah. Because it's a five-year anniversary. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, no, I, I always wanted to instill humor in everything I did just because I have, a, I'm, I like, I think it's fun. I like to be fun. Yeah. And like I said, I, I, and I wanted to be diametrically opposed to what people expect out of industrial music. Yes. I didn't want to be so serious and use all the same type of graphics and imagery that mm -hmm. was on all the other CDs that everybody else is putting out. I want people to see a Recon CD and go, oh, that looks like something that Recon put out. Yeah. And the next thing they mention is that the cash flow problem of an indie label, that without the store, it wouldn't have worked for them. So was this a huge problem for you or was Cargo like the store for you? That Well, yeah. So cash flow was an issue in the sense that Cargo paid for everything. And so they wouldn't spend a lot on my division. Mm -hmm. So I always had to fight for every advance to give to groups. Um, but also a lot of the groups didn't make back a lot of money. We didn't recoup a lot. So it was, it, you know, so maybe they were right to be tight spending on some of the stuff. Yeah, so money was definitely an issue. And I mean, obviously in the tail end, like I said, they licensed Blink to MCA, got a lot of money. I don't know if we didn't get that money in, maybe my label might've folded sooner. But yeah, we just weren't selling a lot of units of a lot of CDs. I mean, some did better than others. The best-selling one was probably Shut Up Kitty. Yeah. was probably the best-selling thing release I put out. And Technotic Effect did well. Although, one of my favorites, I love cyberpunk fiction, even though I don't think that was a big seller. I love all the... Because <laughs> the, the guys from Society Burning, they got their friends to do all the snippets in between, all the uh -huh. sections from the movie, and where they wrote them as cyberpunk 
<laughs> takes on Pulp Fiction, right. which I thought was great. And uh, and I love the artwork that the guy from Diatribe did for the cover. Yeah, it was great. Uh, Kevin was he, he, really cool art style. If money was an issue, Recon might still be around. Right. We also learn in the film that none of the bands had contracts. Waxtrax was releasing their music without any <laughs> kind of contracts. And then the bands start jumping ship, 242, through Go Cult. Next, TVT swoops in. Unfortunately, Jim gets sick. There's the fall of the store. Jim passes away. Danny is lost. He's pretty much done with it. Chris Connolly calls TVT a big, unfocused monster that didn't know what it wanted. I was like, well, that's never good. Danny's not well, and he descends into addiction. Unfortunately, sadly dies. And then it cuts to a 33rd anniversary Wax Tracks record show that's three days. People coming in and coming up to the daughter and saying how much this music meant to their life, and that's what her dad was doing. And then the movie ends. I was just thinking about it, and I was like, you had no idea making the things that you were making that some kid in Oregon was buying all of this and spending all his time like listening to it on headphones and telling his friends about it and, and how much this like music ended up meaning to me. So I just wanted to say thank you, and I really appreciate getting to have this conversation with you because 30 years later, it still means a lot to me. Oh, that's great. I, I definitely appreciate that feedback because now I'm going to cry. The moment you've been waiting for it. Uh, <laughs> No, the moment you're waiting for is me to review your music and reveal my last name, <laughs> or and to talk about my pivot. Right. Uh, that never happened, which maybe you might have then lost faith in my label. Yeah, no, that's great to hear. Like, you don't really, because there's no internet, you don't really know how people react to your label. You know, um, I did run into pockets. Like, I'd go to clubs and stuff. I had, over the course of my career, I had four different people tattoo my logo on them. That to me was like, where's your tattoo if you're really a fan? No. Right. I don't have one yet. Wow. <laughs> Now's the time. I had four people send me their tattoos and I was like really impressed. I'm like, wow. It's... I, and then I felt I can't put out anything crappy because I didn't want to, them to feel They're bad about it. Yeah. That, that was really cool. And I, I love hearing that it meant something because, like I said, there wasn't much of a way to get that kind of feedback unless mm. somebody decided to write you a letter and stuff. And and people wrote to me. I would send people stuff. I was always really happy to when I heard people were fans of what I was doing. You know, I've always been a giver. Like I said, I'm going to look through to see my CDs, to see if extras of the releases you don't have. And I'll ship those over. That way you can catch up on what you missed for <laughs> podcast number two. I found a lot of your catalog on YouTube, and one of the people was like called themselves like the Recon something, and they had put up like individual tracks of compilations, you know, just the image of the album. I was like, whoa, these people have categorized or, you know, cataloged your catalog. It's really interesting <laughs> to see like this person you probably don't know is just putting it up there and then people are finding it. Because like some of those remixes are only on those specific releases. And in, if it's not on eBay, it's nowhere. So it's, you know. Yeah. Recently, like probably once a year, I'll go up on Twitter and just search my group name. And if I see people mention it, I'll respond to their tweets. Oh, that's cool. And connect with them. and Because, yeah, I love that fact that anybody even still remembers it. Because, like I said, it was such a special time in my life. And I really miss it. But the pivot I was going to do. Yeah, what's the pivot? Um, well, I don't know. I said, well, it was going to be a side label. But while I was running the label, I was also a freelance journalist. Not just doing... I was doing some music coverage and I got flown to Iceland to interview, to cover this group called Gus Gus. Goose yeah. Goose. Yep. And so they, they were going to be the next Bjork, uh, which unfortunately they weren't in terms of popularity. Yeah. They had the song Polly Yesterday. 
Yeah, uh, the song I love is called Believe. Great. When oh, that's an amazing movie. song. Right. Oh, and I do need to tell you about something else that I did. So something else that you're going to appreciate. So I went to Iceland and I discovered they had us go to this small local club and there's this group called Quarashi, which were like a Icelandic version of the Beastie Boys. And I said, oh, I love it. But they had an upright bass player and they have some songs where they'd have this woman who sounds like Bjork sing a, a few lines from. And I'm like, that's cool. They've got this Beastie Boys rap style, but then they have this Icelandic singer and a few other cool. And the, and the music was good. And so then I said, I wanted to sign them. And I, I had this idea. I said, I want to start an international hip hop label. Because at the time, yeah. Chibo Mato was kind of popular in the indie scene. And they were like singing in, uh, in Japanese, I mm -hmm. think. And I said, well, if they can, if a group not singing in English at the time could be popular, at least alternative scene, a label could support more of these types of groups. So, um, I mean, they sung in the, Karashi sung in English, but they also had a Icelandic song. But then I also had started reaching out to all these other groups and I started building out this collection. Like there's a group called Shabak S who, an Israeli oh, band. Yeah. And so I, I had all these, so I said, I want to put out this international hip hop label, be the first one to do it in the U S which, which has people rapping in different languages and stuff. But it was all anchored around my love of Quarashi. They were unsigned. They just had to put out a single five song EP. Next thing I know they have a manager. Then they have a local label. Next thing I know they're signed to, they get signed yeah. to like Nitro, like uh, Offspring's label. But then, but when they got signed, they end up starting, the music they released started sounding like Limp Biscuit. Like, yeah. it's almost like they wanted to be American, but what they didn't realize is the things that didn't sound American, which is what made them stand out. I mean, they end up playing a warp tour, so they did have some success, I guess, but most people haven't heard of them. That was going to change the game for me if I got them, because I was going to really just double down on that, which would have been interesting for recon fans to go. Why are they doing? But I, like I said, it was actually the label was going to be called Cheese Crafty. I was going to move my focus over to that. But that was the pivot. But the thing I was going to tell you about is when I was working on the launch of Bayonetta, mm -hmm. the Sega video game, it's very goth and uh, the game itself. I wanted to break it in like the music on it is very Japanese. And I my I said, well, we want to make the we want to make this game more appealing to U.S. audiences. So I had the guys from SMP. I worked with Jason to, to put together some music for a song. I actually sent him some beats to sample. They sample like once from like a, uh, I think, Giving Ground and from, from Sisterhood and and some other songs. I have him sample some, some sounds. And then I got MC Lars, who's like this laptop uh, rapper. Yeah, yeah. So and MC Lars brought on three of his friends. I wanted to also be innovative when I were putting out songs. I wanted to be a gothic hip hop song. So then I got the singer from Switchblade Symphony to sing the chorus. So I'll, I will share a link. It's a song called Reaping Beauty by oh, MC Lars. I want to hear that. Yeah, so you get to hear like the SMP music. You get to hear Switchblade Symphony vocals, and then you get to hear a bunch of rap. But it's a really catchy song, too. So there was two other things that remained. I know there's your song. Yep, yes. Let's get and to so, that. <laughs> yeah, so I listened to your song, and it definitely is something I would have put on a, one of my If It Moves comps. I really ah. liked it. I like your vocals. Oh, uh, thanks. It's weird because... Like a lot of the stuff that I loved, I don't necessarily love now because sure. my mind has changed a lot. But yeah. I think one thing I would have liked to have seen, but I probably still would have put out as is, but I, I would have loved to see you actually bring the vocals up to get to scream some more in it. Like, yeah, because vocals are all at one level throughout the song. <laughs> yeah. But I like your sound. I like the quality of it. It's I like the music. Oh, um, thank you. Yeah. I, like I said, I could see this on If It Moves. Oh, release, so. I would have died to be on one of those compilations. And I can say that now because I'm not putting out. Actually, I do have one unreleased If It Moves album that never came out. Whoa. 
So actually, I don't know if it was going to be, if it moves or if it was going to be a recon release, a recon comp, but I have, like, I got songs from like SMP and a bunch of groups. Like I was going to put out this, it was going to be like my, my final compilation that never came to fruition. Uh. I think some of those groups put out those songs on other places, but if you want, I'll burn you a copy of that. See, yeah. if I can, uh, you can have the, the unreleased if it moves. <laughs> awesome. I think it's a recon release because it was only recon artists I was working with for it. Yeah. So that's it. So are we to my name reveal? We're to or the name, is... yep. Okay. But if I tell you my last name, you've got to make sure you really hype up this show. Okay. <laughs> okay. My last name is actually Chase. What? Oh my gosh, this is like an M. Night Shyamalan thing here. Exactly. Wow. Okay. Got it. And your question's going to be... I don't need to ask. Your first name's also Chase. You're Chase Chase. No, no, no. <laughs> just kidding. Chase is just my last name. Okay, what's the first name? Well, we'll have to do another podcast oh, to get to that. Okay. All right. That's fair. That's fair. You you walked into it. Yeah, I, yeah. I I'll take it. I should have bargained for something better than more PR. I'll have to right. you know. I should have said cupcakes. You gotta send me cookies and I will tell you the name. I'm down the, uh, to uh, just the last couple questions. Sure. Oh. One I wanted to know was did you ever get something submitted for a compilation from a band that you didn't want to release? Oh, yeah. I, I mean, there I got a lot of stuff that didn't make the cut. Okay. I mean, sometimes it was awkward, though. Like, that's why it's tough. Sometimes I asked people to do, like, my, my cover album, sometimes I'd ask people to do a song. Yeah. And then, then they'd do a cover, and I'm like, oh. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff that definitely got cut. Um, I was very selective about what I put out. I'm trying to think of, like, was, was there any group that went on to be famous that I passed on? <laughs> but that never happened. Like, there's okay. no, like, oh, I have this old Nine Inch Nails tape right. before, you know, I did love there's a supplement to the movie that we've discussed that's just extra footage that the daughter had that didn't make it into the film. And one of them is one of the members of 242 talking about when they got Nine Inch Nails first album, like the demo of it. And they played it in Chicago and in the Wax Tracks record store and none of them liked it. And he's like, he's like, I'm sorry, Trent, we didn't know, because obviously it was like way bigger than any of their records. But he's just like, we put it on and we said, this is not good. And I was just like, oh, jeez. Yeah. The group that I thought had the biggest potential was Diatribe. And that was such a weird scenario because we put out their EP. Yep. And then we had a contract. Uh, we only had a one album contract beyond that. Basically, the EP was meant, nothing was just meant as sort of a teaser for a full album. And so, you know, we already paid for it and we were following up with them like, when's the album going to be ready? When's it going to be ready? It took forever. And then suddenly we get a notice from their lawyers saying, we're no longer on your label. We're going to sign with some major label. And so we're like, uh, there's other ways they could have tried to get out of it. But this was like, they just played the lawyer card straight out of the gate and said, hey, we're no longer out. And then uh, that's the thing. Cargo was a big indie. So it's like they could afford if I was a one-man army, you know, maybe I might have said no. But we did have contracts and stuff. So we said, no, you owe us an album. And then it went back and forth for a while. Then finally, they end up delivering the album, some older stuff and some newer stuff. But it wasn't the most consistent album. And, I mean, I would have been happy just re-releasing a bunch of <laughs> Needle Park and, yeah. and Cockeye. Therapy. It's weird that it got to where it did because, you know, I was so passionate about that group and working with the group. And... And, you know, but when they hit that wall with us, they were trying so hard to get out of it. I mean, but if they just put out a release with us and then they could have gone on to major label success after that. So, but we did put out the release, but I don't even know what, I, I mean, I do know what happened to the main guy. He went and started doing, he was successful doing music soundtracks, I think for TV or movies. Mm. But I was really bummed that 
They never put out any music after that because the guys know how to write songs and it was good. When I put out that single, I also put a... Ultraside? Yeah. Like that stuff was radio friendly. Like uh, yep. at the time, I said, that to me is like the most mainstream thing I ever put out. Like I said, Ultraside, I said, this should have been a huge hit, you know, in the era of Filter and those types yeah, of groups. Yep. I mean, that was the thing that was frustrating is that Unfortunately, at that time, I can get on college radio, but mainstream radio, it was all payola industry. The yep. major labels paid for play, and we never had that kind of money. So I always felt that SMP and Society Burning put them together, you got Linkin Park. Yeah. You know, I felt I was ahead, of, and Clay People was ahead of Disturb. Disturb is basically Clay People, the way he sings and everything. Yeah. I felt like I was either ahead of my time or behind the budgets that I needed. Mm -hmm. So it was frustrating when I started hearing what people were into, like, oh, this is great. And I'm like, I put out a group like that once. <laughs> yes, yeah. And, uh, but anyways, yeah, but I think Diatribe was my biggest disappointment because I thought they had the most potential. Yeah, well, and 16 Volt, they kept going and going. They ended up on that America record label or American, and then that ended up folding right before their album was like, you know, they were supposed to go on a tour yeah. and everything. It's like some of these bands, labels, artists, it's like everything's set up and then it just, you see it like fall apart, like the structure beneath the artistry. So for me, like I still have the albums. I have it all the stuff back here. You want to talk about an artist that was like always ahead. Meet Beat Manifesto was like yeah. 10 years ahead of everybody else. And by the time music caught up, he was doing something completely different. I have the Sweatbox versions of their releases because they're basically this warehouse got flooded and they lost all their old masters. But I bought the actual Sweatbox albums they Whoa. put out because back in the 80s, early, mid, probably around 87, when I got into industrial, I met people who were already into like Skinny Puppy. Mm. And I said, this has always been my mindset. I said, I didn't want to be playing catch up with my friends. So I would go to the record stores and go, what groups do you have that sound like this group? Mm. And so I saw they said... Sounds like Nitzareb, it was Meet Beat Manifesto. <laughs> that was at Bleaker Bob's. They always they always would just put a name on that they thought would sell, which yeah. worked. And I bought it. I, I got spec. I go, this sounds nothing like that. But I go, this is amazing. Yeah. So I got the early albums of theirs. So I was in the Jack Danger stuff at the onset. And I saw them live. They toured with Consolidated. Yes. Um, which was good. I mean, we're clearly just going to talk forever, so I should probably wrap up the episode because we both are like, I love this and I haven't talked about it in a while, which is great. Was there anything else about... Oh, yeah, Swamp Terrorist, that's another group that I like. Right, I can't believe I didn't even mention Swamp Terrorist. Well, what I liked about them is that they would use these like hip-hop samples mm -hmm. in, the, in their music. That had that kind of aesthetic that I liked. They actually had the song Greyhound, which was like an EP. Like, that was a really cool... can't believe I remember some of these names. I'm glad to see like groups like Collide are still around, still putting out music. Still doing it, yeah. Um, the group that got kind of screwed over was Per Machine. Yes, yep. Because I put out their release that was like two months or so before the label folded. Sorry, guys. Like yeah. They're like, wait, you just released their album and now you're going away and I'm. it's not like I had a choice. Right. You know, like I said, I really appreciate you being such a fan of the music, bringing me back after all these years. I will go look to see what stuff I have in the archives. It might take a while because I don't know how far <laughs> that might be. But let me know which CDs you don't have. Yeah. And that way I can see what I uh, dig out of the crate. Well, you did put something out called Assimilate, which I think may have been a 12-inch. Yeah, that was a 12-inch. Don't make me ship an album. Jeez. No, no, no. But no, it, I was I, just saying, I came across the Diatribe remix. It's either The Other Side or Kingpin that's on that. And it is one of the better remixes. It is so good. That was with Screw, because I wanted yes. I was working with uh, that metal label. 
because I thought that would help bring visibility to mm-hmm. my label, you know, so, you know, share audiences. That's why I did that ripped up and so sedated seven inch. Because here's the thing, I thought the two industrial groups I put on with those two, the other two were random tapes that were sent to Cargo, demo trying to get on the Cargo label. That I mm. thought, oh, these songs are catchy. But with the 7-inch, it was 16-volt, and what was the other? Maybe it was a killing floor? I forget off the... But it's I, not Hate Department, I, right? That was different. No. So I thought the 7-inch would help try to get me... Because I thought when you listen to some of 16-volt songs, it was like almost like grunge meets industrial. Mm-hmm. And I really wanted the rock audiences to get into this just because like at cargo i remember people hated a lot of didn't they hated all the industrial music but i remember they liked uh, rage against the machine i mean it's not industrial anyway but it was like rap it was sort of a, a convergence of the indie rock they were into with rap and i'm like well maybe i can get them into a convergence of indie rock with industrial mm-hmm. you know so that was sort of like my goal with ripped up and so sedated hate department's another great group which is yes this was the challenge for me with releases i put out there's very few groups where i liked every song they would release because i'm very picky so a group had to have at least like four or five songs that i liked out of you know out of ten and with hate department i never had the right ratio with each release i am truth is still one of my all-time favorite songs same he was a great front person and i really like their shows they put on great shows Mm -hmm. I think the group that I missed the most was Babyland, which is interesting because we actually had a falling out, but I didn't know we had one. Oh. So here's the thing. I had the song on one of my If It Moves comps where on Scavengers of the Matrix, I reached out to to Dan for Babyland. I said, hey, do you want to do, uh, can you do another Vampire Ronis collab? And he's all, sure. So then I called Daniel from the Ronis. I go, overnight this tape to Dan. And because... I work fast and yeah. I was excited and stuff. But then Dan, I got the sense that he felt I was taking advantage of him. Like he didn't realize, like he thought the tape had already been sent earlier. Like I presumed he would do it. He didn't realize that it was like overnighted. Oh. So I felt like he, there's some weird resentment. So then if you listen to the, with the song that he collaborates on, it starts off with his, he actually says my name. It says, Chase, I never hated anyone as much as you or something like that. Like this. Whoa. But I said, but that's such a good song. <laughs> <laughs> but I really didn't understand where the anger was coming from. Cause yeah, I caught him up because you know, I don't like anybody to be mad at me. And I'm like, sure. is this song about me? He didn't give me a clear answer or something. Like it was really ambiguous. And I'm like, you know, Weird. it's a simple question, you know. But I also didn't know like there was a t- before that though, he'd invited me, like he was getting he lived in LA and I was said he invited me to their wedding, which I didn't go to, but mainly because I just wasn't big on going to weddings. I didn't have a reason. So I didn't know if maybe he resented me for not going to that. But like, we weren't close at all. Mm. I only worked with him, you know, had a working relationship. I went to his shows. I loved all their music and I I loved his music. So I didn't really understand. I mean, I'm, this is me was trying to piece together the pieces. Like, why does this person have an issue with me? You know? Yeah. And I really couldn't figure it out, which is tough because when I hear that song, I hear that, but I go, this song's really good. He knew how to sing around the rodents music unlike anybody else. That's the thing I wanted to put out is going to be called Mouse Driver. It's a project I had in my head. I don't know if I shared that name mm-hmm. with them, but I wanted to do a project which was going to be Dan and Dan. Like oh, I wanted to do a full cool. album of their music, but this was before that incident. And I think that music ended up becoming like the Vampire Road CD he put out on Fifth Column or something like that as oh. instrumental. Yeah, yeah. But I really wanted to put out an album with Dan because I just liked him, but I loved his music. I just thought he has such a unique voice in the industry. and. Um, thing is i've actually reached out to him since then like on facebook and i mean he said something positive about me in some facebook post like oh chase did something like you know so maybe it's all forgotten who maybe knows it's fine. but that was that was the one thing that always 
bothered me because I'm a people person and I, I will do anything to make people happy. So if uh, if I've done something that <laughs> that makes somebody upset, I want to remedy it in any way possible. Sure. Yeah, no, I'm the same for sure. Well, Chase, thank you so much for indulging me in this uh, walk through your record label and talking to me about the industrial accident, the story of Wax Tracks Records. <laughs> Where can people find you? Anywhere on the Internet? They won't find me by searching for my label. Right. Unless it's me responding to somebody mentioning my label. I'm on uh, Twitter at three words, Chase, just Chase. So if I say it's Chase, just Chase, they might think, oh, it's just Chase. No, it's Chase, just Chase. <laughs> so yeah, they can find me on Twitter there. That's probably the easiest way to find me. Actually, I just posted about the Sisters of Mercy tour, which came through town, which is um, yep. probably people will think is on brand for this call. But if you look at all the other music tweets I've put out for over the, like, the last five years, it's all K-pop. Yeah. So okay. um, I belong to a K-pop family. My wife, kids, and myself were all really big on it. Yeah, if you told Recon Chase <laughs> that that he's going to end up, you know, 20 years later with a kid going to dozens of K-pop shows, I would say, no, nah, not going to happen. But K-pop, actually, there's like one group, Stray Kids, has this song. They use the guitar, like the Slayer guitar that sounds just like Virus. That's the song Whoa. that got me. It's called Beware by the Stray Kids. And that's what actually got me into K-pop. I'm like, wait, because my family was already into some of the popular stuff. I go, wait, this sounds like got virus energy. And then that's what got me into K-pop was actually a connection to the industrial or bring the noise sound as well. But K-pop is really the way songs are written is actually aligns with what I like is that unlike American pop, where it's like verse, chorus, verse, like the the music structure is really consistent. When you start a K-pop song, it might end somewhere totally different. And they bring in everything. They'll bring in Indian instrumentation, you know, rap, hip hop. They do everything. The song structures are so creative, the instrumentation, that it's something that really speaks to me. Like I find more originality in K-pop than I do in a lot of other music genres. So it speaks to me on that level. That's great. I am seeing Love and Rockets and Thrill Kill Cult this week. So two different shows, very on brand for this conversation. So we have a balance there. As always, I'm Dirk Marshall, and this has been VHS. Yo, we got mad Jawas in the house, you know what I'm saying? Here you go, special one goes out to my main homie, Chewbacca. You know what I'm saying? The Wookiee with the cookies. Captain Kirk. <laughs>